This episode is hosted by Lee Atchison. Lee Atchison is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His most recent book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, an engaging and informative podcast produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business with the help of modern applications and processes developed for today's fast-moving business environment. Subscribe at mdb.fm and follow Lee at leeatchison.com. Cloud-native applications utilizing microservice architectures have grown into one of the most popular application architectural patterns in recent years. The value of leveraging dynamic cloud resources along with the flexibility and scalability of microservice architectures creates a strong paradigm that's hard to miss. The strong adoption of Kubernetes has strengthened this pattern enormously. The unique structure and requirements of Kubernetes has led to an increased need for Kubernetes-specific monitoring and diagnostic tools. And there's been a large number of companies who have jumped at this opportunity. One of those companies is Commodore, a Kubernetes diagnostic platform that focuses on Kubernetes troubleshooting for the entire Kubernetes stack. Eitel Schwartz is the co-founder and CTO of Commodore, and he joins us today. Hello, Ito, and welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for being here. This is great. This is our second time redoing this. So for those who listened to the first time, hopefully you can hear this one much better. And I want to thank you very much for taking the time, Ito, to go ahead and, and doing this re-recording. Yeah, like you know, I really enjoyed our, our last conversation, and I'm happy that uh, we can do it again. And hopefully this time the audience can, you know, hear more about uh, Kubernetes, the difficulties, troubleshooting it, and so on. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Kubernetes is central to operating modern microservice architecture applications, right? And so in your experience, where do most microservice-related failures come from? Most failure comes from the, you know, the there are like two levels of failures, I would say. First one is interdependency communication. Like service A is talking with service B, is talking with service C, is talking with service D. Like everything needs to play really nicely with one another in order for the application, for the greater thing to work. And every time something around one of those areas break, then the user is usually left in a situation where he now needs to understand and to find like the root cause in this very complex system. So there is the inter-application communication that is like, one of the very like prominent reasons why things fail and it's really hard to understand what failed. The other thing is the infrastructure itself. Kubernetes in the end of the day is here to run your application. You have a container, this container runs for some sort of application and this application satisfies your business needs. So this is like the basic of Kubernetes. But for this application to work properly, it has a lot of dependencies. It depends on the load balancer. It depends on the persistent volume claim. It depends on the persistent volume itself, config map, secrets. So there are a lot of supporting factors for the application. And again, when one of those things break, when one of those things change unexpectedly, things fail. Like those are like the two main failure scenarios in, in Kubernetes. And in, like I think 
both of them happens also outside of Kubernetes. Uh, the thing about Kubernetes is that it is very popular and it is very easy to change things in Kubernetes. And that is what makes things like uh, even more complex or, or more complicated because Kubernetes gives you the ability to change a value of like a YAML file and get a completely different application. And in bare metal world, until you start the machine and until you configure everything, until you do the change, like it's hours just to configure things. And in Kubernetes, you change the config map value and in 10 seconds, you already have a new application. So I think like that's like why it is even more predominant in Kubernetes. But I will say those failure reasons and scenarios are true for, I think, all distributed application, basically. Valid point. It's So it's dependency management is really the biggest root mm-hmm. cause. And whether that's infrastructure dependencies, which exist in all apps, or inter-service dependencies. And you can argue that Kubernetes applications being microservice-based versus bare metal apps, which tend to be monoliths, have a lot more interdependencies to deal with. And that's kind of what your point is. There's so many more dependencies involved here. I will say that, you know, absolutely. And there is like one, another like factor in Kubernetes that makes it more complicated. Kubernetes makes things to look really easy at the beginning. Like you do the hello world Kubernetes, everything just works. Everything is so simple, like kubectl apply minus F to some Git remote file and you know, and you have your application running and it's amazing. I really love Kubernetes and I think it's like one, if not the greatest technologies of like the last decade or so. But when things fail in Kubernetes, you always ask yourself, how did it work until now? The abstraction layer is so good that once something leaks, when you need to understand how did the network policy really work in Kubernetes until now, you are in a really bad state because Kubernetes like lure you in with is very like um, simple to use API and everything looks like happy. And then you understand that you are way over your head. And I see a lot for like the Commodore customers or people that I talk in the Kubernetes ecosystem that the day one Kubernetes is hard, but not terrible. The, the day two operation managing the chaos is really, really hard. Like, uh, because what we said, but also because a lot of people don't expect it. They think you can throw everything in Kubernetes and it will work like magically. And, you know, simply it uh, it's doesn't. not the case. <laughs> yeah. So it's an exponential learning curve. It starts out very, very easy, but there becomes a magic point where it becomes very, yeah. very difficult. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is bad. I must admit, it's a really bad like a learning curve because you don't see it coming. You, you simply don't see it coming unless you have someone in the team who is a Kubernetes expert and there are not a lot of those kind of people. And he tells you, wait a second. We need to think about how we're going to troubleshoot it. Once we're going to have an issue, how are we going to know what changed? How will we know if it's an infra problem or an app problem? You need to ask those right. questions in advance so you can prepare your system accordingly. And I will say that not a lot of people are doing so. Well, that gets us into Kubernetes monitoring, right? So what are some of the key requirements for monitoring a Kubernetes stack and an application in that stack? Yeah, great question. You know, for like the full disclosure, I work and I founded Commodore, a startup designed to help people troubleshoot and to manage chaos inside Kubernetes and basically to be on top of what is happening in their cluster. But before diving into like what is Commodore, I will say that like the basic thing that you must have if you are in multiple Kubernetes clusters, 
are like the basic. Having something that manage your like um, track your CPU, memory usage, and so on. Basically, metrics. It might be Prometheus. It might be Datadog. It might be New Relic, and so on. I would suggest like a centralized centralized logging system, place where you can ship all of your logs, so you will be able to search for them very easily. Again, there is like Hibana and Loki as like the strong open source alternative. Maybe Splunk and also Datadog is like the paid versions. And maybe distributed tracing. And here you have like Jaeger and Datadog and New Relic. That is also very important. I think distributed tracing, as a developer, I really like them. It, like it's fun. You can see the trace map of a single request and understand how did it spread over your system, like one request and to track it across all of the different microservices. The issue is from what I see from customers and, you know, fellow developers is that distributed tracing is hard to get your hand around, like wrap your hand around. I see a lot of people that are not really utilizing tools like Jaeger and Datadog simply because it's more complex. So I would advise it if you know how to use it. If not, maybe you shouldn't do microservices. But if you are in microservices and you are not using distributed tracing, you are going to have blind spot. So I'm not sure like what, where exactly I stand in this area. And the fourth thing, which I would say like the most important is, is basically Commodore and our tool really helps you to understand the current state of what is happening in your cluster, but also the different correlation and dependency that we just talked about. How is my application connected to the infrastructure or connected to other application? But also we give our developer, the, our users, the ability to go back in time and to understand how did the application and how did the, change, the cluster change over time. So you're able to track all of your deployment. You are able to track uh, config map that changed, node that was drained, uh, PVC claims that were unsuccessful. You can go back in time and basically you can think about it as like a, a timeline for everything that happened in your cluster. And when you have a problem, when you have an issue, going to Commodore gives you both all of the history, but also all of the interesting correlation. And we are trying to take the hard parts of troubleshooting Kubernetes and to simplifying them. So like, I think uh, for, for your question, like I'm now going and running my own like Kubernetes shop and I want to know what I need to install like in advance. So I will say like, make sure you have metrics, make sure you have logs. Maybe you need distributed tracing and you most certainly need Commodore. So it would be in that order, Commodore, of course, but in the order yeah. you would do metrics first, then logging, then distributed tracing. Is that a, a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Like metrics are like the basic. And if you don't track them, I think you'll be lost. I think for logging, like maybe you can work your way around like you're doing kubectl logs for at least at the beginning. If you don't have a lot of like application, I think it might work. Like it's not ideal, you know, and there are good open source alternatives. So just install them. But I do see customers that don't have centralized logging and are able to operate like in, in a good manner. I think the thing that is very powerful around metrics and also like around Commodore, I will say, is that those tools are proactive. You can configure alerts on like CPU 90% and Commodore comes pre-built in with monitor around Kubernetes about like the healthiness status of your cluster, your application, and so on. Those things know how to shove in your face that you have a problem. And it is really important, you know, as the, like a, 
a DevOps SRE and mindset. Nothing beats a solid learning process to understand how things work. Yep, yep. I think, you know, like, again, not a lot of people think about it in, in advance. Like, I'm going to Kubernetes, how I'm going to know when it fails. But, you know, like, that's the first question I ask myself, starting any dev project, to be honest, when it's going to fail, because I'm sure that everything I write is going to fail, how I'm going to monitor it, and I'm going to be able to bounce back really fast. And I think like that's the mindset that you must have in a cloud native like area. Applications do tend to fail. The question is how fast you are able to detect it and remediate it and basically to, to fix the issue. So this is something that, first of all, you need the mindset. And secondly, you need like the proper tooling. And, you know, Commodore like really shines here. And again, like also like metric Prometheus is a great tool. Like Datadog, again, it's also like a great tool. We use Datadog and quite pleased with that. So let's walk through a scenario here. Let's say I'm building an application from scratch. I'm new to running Kubernetes. I'm setting up Kubernetes, you know, in production for the first time. Where should I start to be able to watch and make sure my cluster stays healthy? What should be the first things I do? Yeah, I think like, you know, Commodore, or if you are not using Commodore, then you're probably using kubectl, right? Like that is what you're going to do. Like you're going to install your first app and then doing some sort of command of like giving all of the resources and make sure everything is healthy and is on track. I think like that's the, the basic of working in Kubernetes. And then, you know, going to Commodore or to the metric solution for your of your choice and having those like, after you validate that everything is working correctly, making the proper like alerts in case things are going to go wrong. And I think like that, that this is how I would like start um, the process. If you are like still not in production, maybe I won't do alert at the very first um, moment and, and I will like do the iteration until I feel confident enough and only do the alerts. Cause if your application is currently crashing, you don't need alert you know that everything is bad. Like, you don't need to tell me that. Uh, so you don't want to have this kind of noise. It's also important. So let's start talking about cloud a little bit. Now, you know, there's nothing cloud-specific about Kubernetes. You know, Kubernetes runs everywhere, not, not a problem. But mm-hmm. specifically in cloud computing, the cloud computing ecosystem has really taken a strong interest in Kubernetes and specifically the microservice development patterns that Kubernetes encourages, right? So, in fact, the term cloud native, which is kind of all the buzz right now, if you will, ingrains the strong connection between microservices and Kubernetes and ties them closely Mm -hmm. with cloud computing. So where do you see that connection going in the future? You know, will microservices continue to be the dominant Mm -hmm. growth pattern in the future or will things change? What do you see happening there? I think like a couple of things. First of all, I think that Kubernetes by itself is becoming the new cloud. I think we can see it like really clearly as more and more customer, like players, customers are going like multi-cloud and they want one abstraction layer to rule them all. I think Kubernetes is doing a wonderful job in like being that. Kubernetes is the new cloud API. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The thing that is stopping Kubernetes from like owning the market is mainly around stateful application. Like things like SQS, S3, RDS, like those tools are solid and they don't have a good Kubernetes alternative at the moment. 
Until that won't happen, I don't think that Kubernetes can become like uh, the new cloud. I think it's a very big barrier to cross, but there are a lot of different startups trying and aiming to solve that kind of issues. And I think once they are going to be like a stateful application on top of Kubernetes, this is going to be a game changer. So to your question, I think that, you know, it is becoming the new cloud. And I think like AWS is like always a bit bipolar around that. Most Kubernetes workloads run on top of AWS on one hand. On the other hand, AWS was the last like big company that really had like a Kubernetes solution compared to GKE, like Google offering. AWS offering is quite bad, even like I will dare to say like underperforming a lot of different areas. So like Kubernetes and AWS is like have love-hate relationship. I think the main reason is that AWS are a big threat and by the popularity of Kubernetes. So I think that's quite interesting. And on the other hand, you see Microsoft, Google, IBM really contributing to Kubernetes because I think they see Kubernetes as like a game changer in how people view cloud native application. They want people to think in Kubernetes clusters and not in AWS EC2 machines. Uh, So I think it's like an interesting shift that we see in the, the industry. Ah, and you also asked me about like microservices. I'm not like, I'm not sure. Like I have some love for like bigger services, like not monolith, but not super small. Cause once you have a lot of small microservices, then you just move the problem to the dependency between those like microservices. That is why I was never like a Lambda fan or like a serverless fan, to be honest. I joined the revolution here. I completely agree with you on that. I've, I've always thought that was not quite the right solution. There's a lot of buzz here, so I'm not sure like yeah. what will happen. But if you ask me, like medium-sized services is the way to go, not like uh, functions, but not something super big. It's hard to find the right balance. But I see the industry going there. The industry is like trying to go to smaller and smaller microservices. We see projects that are trying to put serverless on top of Kubernetes, like uh, Fission, I think, OpenFast, maybe serverless as well. There are a lot of different projects in that area but it's interesting like i'm not sure like what it's going to happen because if you ask me there are already too much microservices and people are not stopping so i don't know one of the things i talk about is i've I've got this thing i call the goldilocks calculation it's to make services Mm -hmm. just the right size not too big not too Oh, oh interesting but it's you know there's nothing wrong with serverless per se but for the types of things that it's designed for and the types of applications and types of services that work well there. But where I have a problem primarily is when I hear companies, you know, I've had companies come to me and say, guess what? We built our entire application on top of services. Aren't you glad? Aren't you happy that we were able to do that? And I said, no, I'm really not. That's, that's, that was a goal. Why would you want that to be a goal? Why wouldn't you want to build your application in a way that makes sense the most practical way that makes sense for that given domain space versus force-fitting a technology on it. And their goal was to force-fit a technology, and that just didn't make any sense. So I, in my mind is, you know, monoliths have their place, but you know, are certainly the old style. Serverless has its place, but is not everything. And there's this middle ground where I think most services should fit in, and that's the Goldilocks zone I, I was talking about. So we've talked about microservices, we've talked about infrastructure and cloud, but we've been kind of assuming 
that cloud infrastructures were going to dominate infrastructure moving forward, right? We've kind of made that assumption in some of the things we've talked about. Do you see that as the case or do you think there's a plateau where, you know, where cloud adoption reaches a certain amount and then that's it? Is everything moving to the cloud the way some people predict or is there always going to be a place for on-premise applications? I'm quite sure that there is going to be a place to on-premise solutions. Like it's a question of money, right? Like there are like two questions here. One is the privacy question. I think as time progresses, more and more companies are able to solve those issues even in the cloud. Like we are talking with like banks and so on, like old-fashioned Swiss banks, and even some of them are already in Azure or things like that. So I think like the privacy issue is becoming less and less like dominant on one hand. And on the other hand, there is the question of money. And when a lot of money is on the table, I think it might make much more sense of running like your own bare metal on-prem on some of the workloads. I think it really depends on the type of operation your company is running. We see a lot of companies using Kubernetes as some sort of equalizer between the on-prem and the cloud because they, in both cases, they are running Kubernetes and it simplifies their operation like burden. But cloud is becoming much more expensive and people don't really like to pay, right? So I think that for a lot of companies that have specific use cases, if it's like GPU or very strong machine or I don't know, their own like use cases, having some sort of the application running on bare metal makes total sense. And I'm surprised to see so many hybrid solutions from within our customers even, because they're using Kubernetes hybrid, they're using Kubernetes on-prem and on AWS, and they want like one tool to be able to visualize everything and to understand what is happening across those different layers. But like there was a time, I was like more skeptical about the future of on-prem, but I see that because of the costs here, like it's a matter of money, you know, like as someone who founded the company, you care about the success of the business and no one really cares in the like top layer of the company. If you are running like a bare metal basis, like cloud, they care about velocity, they care about cost, they care about security, like they care about a lot of things, but the implementation by itself is not the interesting thing here. And, you know, that's at least what I'm seeing. But I wonder, like, what do you see in the market? Yeah, so I, I see some workloads, you know, specifically, I would say high CPU workloads and high memory workloads and long running workloads tend to perform worse on the cloud. And so those you know, people who are doing a lot of those tend to get turned off by the cloud. And in fact, one of the problems I see is they they buy into the cloud hype, look at moving to the cloud look at the bill that'll come from that and then regret the decision or back off from the decision and go back on premise. And I think, you know, more concerted effort to look at the best utilization makes sense. The cloud is great for what it's designed for, which is dynamic workloads. And given that most applications I think are or can be dynamic workloads, it's a great model for that, but not mm -hmm. every workload is a dynamic workload. And so, mm -hmm. you know, high CPU, high memory, long lasting jobs, long lasting mm -hmm. processes do well on premise much better than in the cloud. But anything requiring any level of variability or dynamicness, you know, I, 
One of the things I love about the cloud, we talked about cost a little bit, but one of the things I love about the cloud is that cloud workloads tend to be built into uh, cost of goods sold for a SaaS company versus cost of infrastructure, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the color of money is very important when you talk to finance yeah. people about where yeah, you put yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so being able to tie a workload to cost of goods sold so it can vary based on sales is an yeah. incredibly valuable asset and makes your money a lot cheaper and a lot better. You know, so I'm right with you there. Is the cost part like it's easier on-prem or on the cloud, like doing the attribution? Well, so it's easier to equate cloud costs with cost of goods sold because you can vary the usage of the cloud resources based on your sales, right? If you're a SaaS company, there's a strong correlation between the number of people who buy your product and the number of people that use your product. Of course, there's lots of variability there, but there's there's still a, a correlation there. And so it's very easy to consider the cloud costs to be, since it's tied to revenue versus tied to just a fixed operating cost, you can vary the expenses based on what you need. And that sort of money that's used for that is a lot easier to come by. It's very easy to get investors to invest money to cover the costs of existing POs, right? That's a very easy source of money to get. It's a lot harder to get companies willing to invest in tooling and infrastructure and upfront costs because that's much more speculative. And that's what you need when you're building a data center and an on-premise system is it's all infrastructure costs. So it's you don't build an infrastructure based on your current sales. You build an infrastructure based on potential sales. And so that variability means the money that you're putting into infrastructure is much more expensive money to be using than money that you put into cloud computing. No, interesting. Interesting points about the cost and like the analyzing of the cost. So really, really interesting. I would say, obviously, like Condor, we're a young startup and we are growing fast. So Obviously, internally, we use Kubernetes in the cloud and quite heckin' pleased about it. But who knows, like in a year or two, when we're going to be huge, like, you know, everything is on the table. <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. So what's the future of Kubernetes in general? I think I will answer it from like two different aspects. First one is like the technology aspects. And that is, like I said, I think the future lies in stateful application running on top of Kubernetes database, as like queues. And I think this will be the next big jump for Kubernetes if he will be able to do it. Like, I think it is like a technology possible, but it requires a lot, a lot of work making Kubernetes work well for those kind of workloads, those kind of application. In a sense, it's like the opposite of the core of Kubernetes, like treat your application as cattle, not as, you know, favorite pets. And a database, most of the time, is really like a favorite pet, like you have one RDS, I don't know, and you love him and you don't want him to die unexpectedly. So I think it's like an interesting milestone for Kubernetes to overcome and it will make it much more popular. So I think like that's one thing. The other thing is around adoption. And I see more and more companies moving and migrating into Kubernetes on one hand, but I also see the shift left movement and I see more and more developer working with Kubernetes. So companies are migrating to Kubernetes, but inside those organizations, some of the troubleshooting ownership of the services is transferred from the DevOps, SRE, you name it, to the developers. 
And I think like this by itself is super interesting. Like I see a lot of customers going into Commodore because we simplify Kubernetes and Kubernetes troubleshooting for the developers. And they try to remove the burden from them because like it's hard to be an SRE or a DevOps. And they try to empower the developers. And I think like this is something which we are seeing that keeps on growing and keep on progressing more and more customers who are developers and not SRE and not DevOps. So I think it's like overall like the future of the software industry and in particular, I think uh, of uh, Kubernetes. Makes sense. Makes sense. What do you think about that? Well, so I actually completely agree with you. What? But let's talk about Commodore. Now, you just had a $42 million, I believe, Series B round. Yep, yep, yep. And so you obviously see some future in Kubernetes, right? And you see a future in Kubernetes monitoring. Where is Kubernetes monitoring going into the future? Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, Commodore becoming the, the standard factor of like Kubernetes and understanding Kubernetes clusters. Other than that, I think that... Like two years ago, when we started Commodore, we like not a lot of people were using like APM solutions. The industry as a whole was much weaker in terms of like observability, monitoring and so on. I think it's becoming like the standard to a level that I really wonder like what will happen in terms of cloud providers. Like Datadog is a huge company, right? Like a really successful company and a product. And I don't think AWS are too thrilled about like the success of Datadog or like of New Relic and so on, because they have some sort of like monitoring and observability. It's quite bad. And this is why people are like dumping it and going to other solutions. But I think that the cloud providers are seeing that as like something interesting and they are spending much more resources on that area. So I think if you'll get everything already baked in inside the Cloud management, it will really change how people see monitoring because it will be so obvious. Yeah, obviously, like I just installed the Google cluster. I have metrics, logs, and maybe distributed tracing already baked in. So I think it's very interesting to see how it will become more like the standards. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about the distinction between diagnostics versus monitoring? In other words, using using these tools for alerting when problems occur versus when there's a problem, diagnosing the problem and solving it. How useful do you see the tools for Kubernetes now in each of those two scenarios? Yeah. Again, like in Commodore, our goal is to help you find the root cause and even to solve the issue from within Commodore, like doing actions on your classroom and so on to complete the loop. I think that the main issue that like most metric solutions have is that, okay, I have a problem. I understand that I have a problem, but why? And to answer that why, usually, and you know, we see hundreds of customers, you usually need to deep dive into another tool. It might be Kubernetes dashboard. It might be going to GitHub. It might be going to the cloud provider. I don't know. But usually you can't close the loop from within the metric solutions. I think Datadog are adding like, a lot of features to try to solve that. They have the logs, they have the metrics, they have the APM. Now they have profiling and they have like error tracking. I don't know. So they are trying to own all of this. I think that one of the key capabilities of Commodore that is currently lacking in this industry is to focus more around like change tracking and understanding how did your change ripple over the system. 
you know, like in the past, there was the change management process and I would send you a Jira ticket and you will do the deployment and everything was super clear and super strict and super slow, right? But now we are in the opposite direction. Everything is super fast. Things break. You don't have any idea what is happening. And I think that, you know, we will see more focus around that area, like doing what Commodore is currently doing. But I think other players might also do similar things because it's so valuable. What, what do you think? I wonder. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think the use cases for diagnostics and monitoring are radically different use cases. But I think a lot of the tools end up being the same thing. They're just used in different ways and they need different optimization. So I see a lot of what you're saying. You're, you're seeing Datadog starting with monitoring, now moving towards diagnostic. I mean, you see companies like New Relic that started in diagnostic and then following through into monitoring. And, you know, and then Commodore and how it fits into the middle there. I think it's going to be more of a difference in how data is used than different types of data collected. That's going to make the difference between solid diagnostic monitoring versus solid monitoring, monitoring, analytics monitoring. But that's just, you know, you know my view. And But it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. So thank you very much, Idol. I appreciate you spending time with me today. My guest today has been Idol Schwartz, co-founder of Commodore, the Kubernetes diagnostics platform. Thank you, Idol, for joining me in Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.